right, welcome back to From Eight Arbitration. If y'all didn't know, I did a kind of a midweek episode uh, about the death of our dear brother, Mr. Gates. So I did that, I uh, think, Thursday. So if you hadn't listened to that, go back and listen. Uh, look, I, I said a lot of things, a lot of bad language, took shots at a lot of people, um, different regions, people at National, and... Uh, I don't regret any of it. <laughs> I, I mean what I say. And I will not walk back anything that I said in that episode. Okay? Uh, again, some people are confused about this. I'm a city letter carrier. And I only concern myself with city letter carriers. So I'm going to speak on behalf of city letter carriers. I don't, have, I don't have any interest at any level in this union at all. And so, things that I say, I mean, 100%, wholeheartedly. So, I don't walk back anything that I say, anything that I ever say. <laughs> That's just who I am. Uh, we lost a brother, and I was furious, and I still am. But So, anyway, if you didn't listen to that episode, go back and listen to it. Um, it's for Mr. Gates, okay, our brother that we lost down in Dallas uh, due to the heat. Um, I'm going to touch on, I'm going to be in depth about rollaway runaways. I had a rollaway runaway accident out of my station back in 2011. I believe it was 2011. And I put together a case file. It's one of the more in-depth case files you'll ever see. I'm going to have Jeremy put the entire case file up on formatearbitration.com. Okay. The entire case file, 262 pages will be up on there. Look. If y'all are dealing with a rollaway runaway accident, get on there, pull up that entire case file. There are going to be things in there that you'll want, that you'll need for your case file, okay? And I'll talk about that at length. It's a huge case file. I'm just going to read very few things from it, but those are things that you're going to need for your rollaway runaway accidents, okay? Um, so uh, I put it, there's going to be a video that I took last week because JB is dealing with a rollaway runaway accident as we speak. And so I made a video um, of my vehicle where you, it had no key in it. I could take it out of park, put it in uh, neutral, uh, right with no key. Had the handbrake up, everything. The vehicle just takes off rolling. And I'll tell you why I did that later, okay? I'm going to touch on stationary events one more time. <laughs> Uh, a lot of people saying that they don't agree with my position, that management is able to monitor us, so therefore they can question us about stationary events, being as they're able to monitor us. I don't agree with that. Had uh, this individual reach out, and he says, uh, my branch trustee works with Step B team. He says spying or covert doesn't apply to scanner because we know that they can track us with a scanner. So just admit what you're doing when stationary, like taking a shit or whatever. He said spying or covert means hiding in the bushes, uh, which is idiotic. Um, I don't know where we have gotten that, that management can monitor us and track us. And I'm being serious. If anybody can send me that, I would, I would want that to see it. Because I don't know where it says that management can monitor us or track us outside of these memos. Does anybody know that? Because uh, I, I honest, honest to God, I don't. So it may be something. I may be completely wrong as far as 
monitoring and tracking us because as far as i know 134 tells you how to do street supervision or watch us on the street which is exactly what they're doing if they're questioning you about something you're doing on the street (laughs) they are circumventing 134 by saying that they can track us and monitor us with these scanners that's all that is that they're circumventing 134 when they question us about anything we're doing on the street because Anything that applies to the street is covered under 134 of the M39 handbook. Now, if they're talking about these memos where it says they can monitor us and track us, that's for right evaluations only. And I'll read you what the memo says. Uh, This is what 1983 says on page 31. This agreement is without prejudice to the position of either party in this or any other matter. The procedures described in this agreement will be utilized solely for the purpose of implementing the joint route adjustment process outlined herein and may be cited only for purposes of enforcing the terms of the agreement. So anything that they're doing as far as watching us with the scanners is solely used for route evaluation purposes for the REIT teams, for the TRAP, It's not for disciplinary purposes outside of the TRAP. So I don't don't know of anything else that I can say other than in 1983, the memo, I'll read again, this agreement is without prejudice to the position of either party in this or any other matter. The procedures, talking about station, talking about uh, stationary events as far as TRAP, questioning us about stationary events as far as TRAP is concerned. That's where we're getting that from. The procedures described in this agreement will be utilized solely, only, for the purpose of implementing the joint route adjustment process outlined herein and may be cited only for purposes of enforcing the terms of the agreement. Here's 1982. This agreement is without prejudice to the position of either party in this or any other matter. The procedures described in this agreement will be utilized solely for the purpose of implementing the joint route adjustment process outlined herein and may be cited only for the purposes of enforcing the terms of the agreement. So I'm not sure where, where we have gotten that they can monitor us. Now look, in, in M1458, you know, that's the one that talks about MSP data. That's scanner data. MSP data is scanner data. Some people are like, that don't apply. It does apply because M1458 talks about scanner data, which is what management is using today when they're asking us about stationary events. That's scanner data. So 1458 applies. Now, do y'all remember when we first had the scan points in the mailbox? When they went around and we had to put It started out like 8, then ended up like 15. We had to put these scan points in our mailbox, scan them when we got to them each day. Yeah, so management could do that. They could look at those scanner data. They could look at that and see if we hit those scan points. But do you remember when when the 1458 came out, what they could not do? They could not take us in and give us an investigation on why did it take you six extra minutes this day than it did yesterday why did it take you from this point to this point 15 extra minutes 
What were you doing? Do y'all remember that? They started bastardizing that, as we always say, like they always do. So when they started doing that, when they started taking these scanners and using them for anything other than to see if we were hitting those scans, when they started using those to do street supervision by saying, it took you 15 extra minutes today to get to the same scan point, what were you doing? And we would say what? Delivering. <laughs> Working. And you know what they couldn't do? Discipline us off of that. Why? Because you can't do that, according to 1458. It's the same thing they're doing today. Why are you stationary for 20 minutes? That's 1458. That's scanner data. Okay? I don't see how that doesn't make sense. Then when we get into the street supervision, it tells you how they're going to do street supervision. Section 134 of the M39 handbook. Because that's all they're doing. It's, they're being lazy as hell, sitting at a desk doing street supervision. Rather than going out there, once they've gathered enough information, however they're going to gather it, about loitering, I see Corey has a problem each day with uh, these stationary events. I'm going to go watch him, as they're required to do under 134 of the M39 handbook. So I filed a grievance on this years ago when they started doing what? You're extending your lunch break. Well, how do you know that? These scanners. Well, how do you know I'm extending my lunch break? Were you out there? I didn't see you. But this scanner told me that you were extending your lunch break. And I filed a grievance on that, and we won it. You know why? Because they can't do that under 1458. You can't use that scanner data to do that. So I'm not sure where we have lost that in translation. But if you have people that are agreeing to discipline, saying that they can monitor us and can do that, we are ill-informed. We are ill-informed and we are doomed in, in those certain stations. Because 1458 prohibits you from using scanner data as the sole determinant for discipline. You cannot do it. And M1982 and 1983 say what? If they're saying that they can now track us and watch us, that pertains to TRAP only. You cannot do it outside of those guidelines as that are in 1982-83. So let's make sure that we're making those arguments uh, for those people that say that I'm wrong because I'm not wrong. Rarely ever will I be wrong about anything. <laughs> so, um, and look, I know there are a lot of people that don't like me. <laughs> a lot of business agents don't like me. And that's okay. A lot of branch presidents don't like me. That's all right. Stewards don't listen to me. That's okay. I'm going to keep doing this every week. I really don't care. I'm going to read something to you. Uh, I had a gentleman send me uh, a message and he said, hey, my branch president isn't going to do anything with these heat grievances uh, other than tell them to do the training because we're not going to get $50 from an arbitrator, which is completely idiotic. First off, I've already I've beat this to death. It's not about the money. And secondly, you have no idea what an arbitrator is going to give you. You don't know who it's going to be in front of. There are some arbitrators I know for a fact that would give it. There's no doubt in my mind I could sell them on it. And there are some that I know for a fact will not even listen to it. They're not going to give it to me. I know that for a fact. I know the arbitrators on my panels. If I can get the right one, I'm going to get the money, no doubt. 
No doubt. So to have somebody say, I'm not going to ask for that because I'm not going to get it, is defeatist. And I'm going to talk about you in just a second. But I had somebody send me this, and it says, Corey, man, you're a GD inspiration to us all, and you represent what our union should be, full of GD fighters. <laughs> my NBA made an appearance in my office this morning, random. Said hi, gave his name. I haven't had a damn bit of support from his office. Most of the time I get blown off, no training, no, new le no newsletters, nothing. I said I had to self-teach. And he went off about you and your podcast and how it's bad representation. Brother, if you're so bad, why are you the only voice I hear? I asked him about his people blowing my small office off. He played the blame game, didn't take responsibility or a way to fix it, asked what he's doing about the one-hour office times we are now uh, finally getting hit with locally. Very few in region have had to deal with it, so nothing for now is what he said. He said it wasn't a national issue. It's localized to a select few. With people like this eating my union dues, my entire station is about to opt out of the union. We get no support in or out of our union. Our president locally is a joke. NBA is a joke. President is MIA. What happened to the NELC? Your voice is power. People would back you if you ever ran for a seat. <laughs> I appreciate it. I'm not going to, but... Um, our union, and I'm going to just combine all these things. Our union will always be a step behind management with MBAs, that mindset. We will always be a step behind. That's why I have implored them, sit down with each other. The 15 of y'all get together and talk about topics that are affecting these regions. This hour office time. They're not going to deal with it because it hadn't come to us yet. That is the dumbest mindset I've ever seen. That is sheer dumbassery when you say that. When you say, I'm not going to get ready for that because we're not dealing with it, that is a, a, a recipe for failure, truly. The 15 business agents should have got together when we started dealing with this hour office time back in August of last year. They should have gotten together and said, hey, this might be coming, so this is what you need to get your stewards ready for, your branch presidents ready for. That way, the very day a manager or supervisor comes out there and says, we're implementing a one-hour office time, an information request could have immediately been put in. And we could immediately get that thing grieved and done away with. Immediately. Not this, hey, what's the business agent going to do? They, they just talk about this hour office time. It, well, it's, it hadn't come here yet. Uh, so we weren't ready. Uh, let us get ready for it now because it's finally here. That mindset is disastrous. Truly. You've got to be smarter than that at the national level with these MBAs. You've got to. This hour office time, it should have been dealt with back in August by all the business agents. So when somebody chastises me, saying I'm bad representation. I'm the only motherfucker that's been talking about the hour office time since last August, bitch. How am I bad representation? I'm the only one talking about it. Your lazy ass ain't done nothing. Just sat idly by watching the other carriers burn in other cities, in other regions. Good luck to y'all. But I'm not going to get my people ready because we've not dealt with it yet. You're a fool. That's what you are. So, 
I will be bad representation. (laughs) I'll be that, okay? But I will continue to attempt to educate the people on the workroom floor, right? To the one who said the $50, we're never going to get that. We're never going to get that. Have y'all heard the old adage, it's not the dog in the fight, but the fight in the dog? You ever heard of that? It's not the dog in the fight, it's the fight in the dog. That's the problem with some of these business agents. They have no fight in them whatsoever. A lot of these branch presidents, they have no fight in them whatsoever. I'm not going to ask for $50. I can't get that. You're already defeated. <laughs> You're already defeated. You know what? You'll, you'll always go down as never have lost if that's what you want. I never lost. That's because you've never fought. There's a difference. I've never lost. Well, how many fights did you get in? I've never fought, but, but I've never lost. What you are is a failure. That's what you are. If your ideology is, I will never fight, therefore I will never lose, that's cowardice, my friend. <laughs> that's cowardice, plain and simple. Hey, I'll never fight anybody. Why are you going to do that? Because that means I'll never lose. <laughs> I'll go down undefeated because I've never lost. You're a failure is what you are. You're a failure at your position as a branch president, as a shop steward, as an MBA. If you say, I'm not going to take something forward because I may lose. <laughs> That's not how union's supposed to work. We're hard chargers here in the union. We fight everything. We fight everything. When I talk about at a drop of a hat, I'm ready to fight. That's JB's mentality at the formal step A. This guy will fight anything and everything. Any He has never found a grievance he didn't love. He will fight everything. And this dude has met on thousands of grievances. Anytime I tell him about something, he grieves it. Everything in the city that goes on, he grieves it. He's never said, I may not win that. I might not win this. He don't give a shit. He's filing and he's working his ass off to win. Do you know what his winning percentage is in this city, in Nashville? 16 stations, several thousands of grievances. Do you know what his winning percentage is? Over 97%. Over 97% of the grievances he meets on, he wins. Now, he'd kill me for saying that. but. And you've got people that are so scared of $50, they're not even going to file. So I'll take the one who's ready to fight. That's who I'm going to be backing. And that's who I'm going to be following is the one who's ready to fight. If you've got a business agent saying, well, we're not going to deal with the one hour office time because it hadn't come here yet. We will always be a step behind management. Always. They will always have the upper hand on your region because of your business agent. I want my business agent to say, what's going on around the country that, that may come our way? Well, they got this one-hour office time. Really? How are y'all beating that? What are y'all doing about that? Well, we got this template. Send me that template. Let's get some stuff together. I'm going to dispense this with all my branch presidents and shop stewards. That way, you know, by the small chance, even if it's a 1% chance that it comes to my region, my people are going to be educated on it, and they're going to be ready. You remember when I, started, when I was talking last year about education? It's the most important thing is education. You want a successful union, you educate. That's what I'm talking about. You educate your members. You educate your stewards, your branch presidents, your formal A's, your B teams on what they're going to do when they're approached with this hour office time. 
Now we've got AVP saying that the, the, the findings are astronomically, astoundingly wonderful how we've implemented this one-hour office time, and the union has no pushback, no kickback, and now the carriers are out in the heat much, much longer, but we got them out of the office in an hour. Regardless of mail volume, they're out of the office in an hour. Regardless of 33 minutes or 43 minutes of fixed office time, they're out of the street in an hour. No pushback from the union because we have MBAs like this dumbass that says, it's not here yet. I've not heard anything about it yet. How about this? How about all y'all talk to each other? <laughs> How about the 15 business agents talk to each other and say, look here, we just got our ass handed to us by this AVP, so y'all better be ready for it because we dropped the ball terribly in our region and now our asses is handed to us. And so y'all make sure that y'all are ready for it so y'all's ass don't get handed to y'all like mine was. Why don't y'all do that? Because y'all are too worried about 15 different unions, like I said. We've got 15 different NALCs in this country, all 15 regions. They're running their own separate union. That's devastatingly stupid to do that. You've got to educate each other, business agents. You've got to educate each other. Our, our president of the NELC should tell the business agents, look, we're going to start meeting once every month. And what we're going to do is, what is going on in your region? And could it affect the other regions? That way, when something happens, we'll be educated on it and be better prepared to fight it. Why don't we do that? I don't know. Maybe because it makes too much sense. Maybe because they're so afraid of, of just releasing just a little bit of power that, you know, I don't want anybody getting in my business over here in my region. I don't want to have any kind of, uh, you know, fingers in my region over here. That, that's stupid. You're the business agent. You were voted in. Have confidence in yourself. Have confidence in your people. Let people in there to see what's going on. You're, you're elected. Some of y'all will be voted out this next time because you're not doing your job. But as of right now, you're elected. Nobody can do anything to you. I'm going to read this to you. And this gentleman sent this to me. And, and I'm blind as a bat, so please forgive me. And this is about the heat training. And this is a grievance that he filed of the falsification of the heat training. And this was the settlement. It's signed already. It's already signed. And this is what the settlement was. Now think about this settlement here and those that say $50 is too much. You've already heard carriers are already getting $1,200 and all this kind of money because they filed the grievance. you got business agents and the RA saying this check you can't cash. I'm not going to ask for 50 because an arbitrator won't give me what you have no idea because you don't know who it's going to be in front of. But here's a settlement that this, at, a, at an informal level, Management shall cease and desist violating Articles 3 and 14, along with Section 1 of EL 801, Section 4 of EL 802, the introduction of EL 814, Section 811, 812, 817, and 821 of the Employee and Labor Relations Manual, and USPS Heat Illness Prevention Program, HIP, via Article 19 of the National Agreement. He got managers to sign off on a cease and desist on violating all of those. It goes on. Henceforth, management shall not falsify any and all documents that regards directly or indirectly city letter carriers and the National Association of City Letter Carriers. I'll read that again. 
Henceforth, management shall not falsify any and all documents that regards to directly or indirectly to city letter carriers and the National Association of Letter Carriers. He got more on that than we've got B teams giving out. He got more on that than we got B teams giving out because they're saying what? Do the training within 14 days. We've got clock rings being falsified nationwide right now. And if I'm y'all, if I'm shop stewards, check your clock rings because a lot of people is popping up all over the place. And the business agents are going to tell you this is popping up all over the place where management is falsifying our tax clock rings, showing people getting out of the office in an hour. That's going on everywhere. I'm getting more and more people messaging me about finding management, falsifying tax clock rings to get everybody out of the office in an hour. So y'all look at that. Make sure you're paying attention to that, okay? That's just a little something for you. That's free of charge. Then it goes on. <laughs> this dude killed it on this here, man. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is beautiful. To further reiterate the importance of safety management shall retrain all city letter carriers regarding HIP via HERO. This shall take place no later than 30 days from the date of the settlement. Proof of training shall be provided to any LC representative so-and-so in the same time frame. Keeps on. Management shall train the identified city letter carriers who had not received the HIP training on March 30th and update it correctly on HERO. Management shall cease and desist from future violations as it relates to providing relevant requested information to the union in a timely manner. Henceforth, management shall provide relevant requested information to the union in a timely manner, but no later than three days from the date the RFI is received from the union. Management shall cease and desist from future violations of Article 15, along with USPS Policy Letter M1517. <laughs> via Article 19 of the National Agreement. Management shall compensate the identified grievance with one-time lump sum payment of $100 as follows. Gives the names. All payments associated with the settlement shall be paid out no later than 14 days. How about that? How about that based off of a single grievance with them falsifying heat training? Would you rather have that or one of these B-team decisions saying do the training within 14 days? Management doesn't want these to go to arbitration. I'm telling you, they do not want an arbitrator saying that they falsified this training. But you have B teams that are being influenced by MBAs that will sell us out. Remember that thing I read to you where the guy said he asked for all that and the B team didn't do any of that, just said do the training in 14 days? It's a cop-out. It's a sellout. But I'm bad representation, according to some of these MBAs. Maybe it's because cockroaches run when the lights are turned on. Maybe that's the reason why some of these business agents don't like me, is because cockroaches, when you turn the lights on, what do they do? They scurry, man. They don't like the light being shined on them. Well, I'm going to keep shining it on y'all until y'all understand what it means to be a union and to fight for city letter carriers. I will continue to shine the light on you. You know why? There's nothing you can do to me. I'm not looking for a position. If I was, I'd get it. I would run for it and I'd win it. I'm not. You know why? I don't want it. Always be a dog that wants to fight. Always be a dog that wants to fight in the union, man. Fight for your city letter carriers. I don't care what the fight is. You fight. All right? I'd rather fight my ass off and lose than not fight at all. I couldn't live with myself being that way. 
I couldn't live with myself just dodging fights all the time. When I was formerly, I fought everything. I fought everything. I don't care what it was. I fought. JB is 10 times the formal step A I was. I don't mind saying that. Hell, I trained him. <laughs> that dude, he's much better at Formula than I was. And I was a beast at Formula son. I was a damn beast. JB, that dude, he don't give a shit what it is. He's fighting. He, he's the best I've ever seen. That's the reason it, it, I was naive when I started this. Because I'm thinking that everybody's kind of the same, kind of has the same passion, that same fire. I was sorely mistaken, sorely mistaken. At the highest level, we have no fight. It bleeds down into the business agents who aren't required to fight, who say people are bad representation because they get on a podcast and tell people to fight. Branch presidents refusing to fight. Formal A's refusing to fight. B teams refusing to fight. That's not the union that I thought that we were in. It really isn't. I was naive. That's not the union that I thought we were in because I thought the union was – was what I was doing, was what JB was doing. My branch president at the time, Dave Clark, what he was doing. The branch president I have now, Dana Chambliss, who is a damn thumper. That's what I thought the union was nationwide. I had no idea that there were people that got no representation whatsoever. I knew that people wanted me to do this for the smaller station to be educated, but I didn't know that people had just had their backs turned on them. Like this gentleman I told you here about the business agent jumping on me saying I'm bad representation. I don't understand that because I'm not representing anybody. <laughs> so uh, anyway, when you hear of it, it's not the dog in the fight, it's the fight in the dog. Remember that when you're dealing with some of these people. Remember that when you're dealing with these branch presidents say, I'm not going to ask for that. I won't get it. You're, you're defeated already. When you have business agents, officers like this RA, that's a check you can't cash. That is someone who has no fight in them. That's somebody who, when they retire, will say, I never lost. <laughs> I never lost a fight. Damn, that's impressive. How many fights are you getting? Oh, I didn't get any fights. Huh? Oh, I never got in a fight, but I never lost one either. Well, if that's what's important to you, you're, you're not in the right position, my friend. You're, you shouldn't be in the union. Because as a union, we fight. No matter what it is, we fight. And so you will never lose, but you'll be a failure. That's what you'll be. You'll never lose a fight, but you'll always be a failure. That's exactly what you'll be. All right. Uh, I'm going to read just a couple other things to you. Here's a, a B team resolution that this gentleman sent me that grieved the 22 minute load time or the, the trips to the vehicle with these hampers. Remember I told you the wire cages were unsafe. And the reason they want us to use wire cages is because it takes less trips to the vehicle. They want you out of the office and on the street. So they're going to give you these wire hampers that uh, are unsafe. They're, they're terribly unsafe. And so uh, these wire cages. And so they have the orange hampers, the blue hampers, which is what we're supposed to be using because uh, ergonomically they're much more safe. And that's what we're supposed to use. So here's somebody that filed a grievance on management that was trying to limit the trips to the vehicle when they were loading it. And this is what it states. Did management violate Articles 5, 14, and 19 of the National Agreement when they instructed this city carrier to load all mail and parcels in one hamper to be able to take one trip to load vehicle? And if so, what is the appropriate remedy? 
And they also had a 1731. Here's the decision. Dispute resolution step B team has resolved this grievance by determining a violation of Article 14 and 19 of the NASA agreement occurred when management instructed the grievance only one trip to load a vehicle was allowed. City carriers will be allowed to take as many trips necessary to safely use the hampers to load their postal vehicles in accordance with handbook PO 502, section 4327. That's fantastic work. That's fantastic work. When management implements these hour office time and these 22-minute load times and these stationary events and all these things, you have to fight. Plain and simple, you've got to fight. Win or lose, you have to fight. And you've got to take it all the way. That's just how we have to do as a union. Management's talent carries, you got 22 minutes to load. How am I going to do that? You're going to put all your damn mail on one hamper and you're going to take that one trip. This person said, we're not going to do that. We're not doing that because it's unsafe. They're going to take as many trips as they need to load the vehicle. No, that's one trip. Well, let's file this grievance then. And you know what happened? He won. He won the grievance. You know why? Because he fought. He's a fighter. That's why. He didn't ask a branch president. Branch president said, you're not going to win that. Don't file it. You know who that sounds like? Management. <laughs> that sounds like management. When I first became shop steward, every grievance I ever filed, you know what my station manager said? That's not a grievance, Corey. You're not going to win that. That's not a grievance. You're not going to win that. So, well, we'll just file it anyway and see where it lands. Never lost a grievance as a shop steward. No, I did. I've lost two. I lost a removal of a guy. He was uh, in bad shape and something else since 2006. So congrats to that. It tells you you need to fight. Here's another, these are just kind of salted peanuts type things here. So this is something came out today. Management is now saying that package allowance time changed from 60 seconds to 30 seconds. That's why everyone gets UT hitches now. I never heard about this. Are they feeding us more, more lying BS? So management's now coming out saying, hey, you got 30 seconds to deliver a package, not 60. Remember when I said management would rather climb a tree to tell a lie than stand on the ground and tell the truth? They'll do everything humanly possible to lie uh, to us and cheat us. They will do everything humanly possible to lie to us and cheat us, telling us that we have these new standards of 22 minutes, knowing for a fact that it's not a standard, telling us that it's implemented this one-hour office time, that that's a new policy. They're cheating us. They're lying to us and cheating us. Telling us that it takes 30 seconds. We now have 30 seconds to deliver a package, not a minute. First off, we have no set time to deliver a package. It takes what it takes. I have no street standard for delivery. No street standard whatsoever for delivery. I can take as long as I want to deliver a package. I have no time frame to deliver a package. You know why? Because I have no street standard. There's no standard for delivering packages. So... Management will stand in the middle of the working floor and lie to the city letter care every time. And we have business agents and B teams and formal A's that will do the, the bare minimum to hold them accountable. The bare minimum to hold them accountable on, that, on those lies. That's the reason why I, me, I will fight them over everything. I give them no quarter, none. I want to fight all the time. And so when these heat grievances come up and you see these, you see us just allow management to falsify things on us, 
to allow them to get away with it, 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 you question someone's fortitude, their, their willpower, their heart, their desire to win, which to me are requirements to be a good union leader. That's the reason why I want to fight every single thing that management does. I want to be the ultimate thorn in the side to management. And that's why, because they will get on the workroom floor and they will flat out lie to your face. Flat out lie to your face. Falsifying clock rings again is rampant now across this country. Falsifying clock rings is going crazy right now. And we have the union, MBAs, B-teams, Formal A's, that have no desire to fight. They won't even say falsify. Here's another thing. Put up, says, my 204B said that I need to explain my stationary events. So they'll send them questions on the scanner. Why are you stationary? And this person is just answering them. Stationary bathroom event. Stationary, now I'm reapplying sunscreen every two hours per the scanner. Skin cancer is no joke. So the 204B is messaging them on the scanner saying, why are you being stationary? Do not answer that. There's no requirement to answer that. You know what I'm going to send back? With that, I'm going to send back one word, steward. That's all I'm sending back, steward. Why are you stationary right here, steward? Why are you stationary right doing this part, steward? That's the only thing I'm sending back is steward. If they say, I'm demanding you to give me an answer, steward. If you don't give me an answer, you're going to get an investigative interview when you get back, steward. I'm giving you a direct order to answer my question. Steward, that's all I'm saying. Steward, that's it. Do not answer questions on the scanner. That will be used against you in the investigative interview and in your uh, subsequent disciplinary action. Do not answer questions on the scanner. The only thing I'm replying is, steward, that's it. If they're going to start doing that on the street, that the questioning to me, them questioning me on the scanner, I'm going to take a picture of it and file a grievance under 134 of the M39 spying using covert techniques because they're doing that outside the guidelines of 1982 and 1983, right? 134 tells you how you're going to do street supervision and it's not sitting here questioning me on uh, the scanner. I, I, that's just me though. That's me. Moving right along. Okay. Now, Jeremy McCall, if you go to from arbitration.com, uh, they finally have it up where you can buy shirts. It's finally up where you can buy shirts. Now, all the shirts are not in there. He's just not putting them in there, so he may want to wait a week. But he's he's downloading the shirts that will be available, the from eight arbitration shirts. A lot of people reached out about that. Well, we've gone through the process of doing a nonprofit, which was an ordeal. And uh, so if you go to formatearbitration.com, you can now purchase shirts, uh, Formate Arbitration shirts, okay? Now, again, 100% of those proceeds, not 99, not 98, not 95, 100% of those proceeds are going to MDA, okay? I'm not going to take a penny of that. I won't take a penny for anybody who tries to give me any money, all right? 100% of those proceeds are going to MDA. So even if you don't want a shirt, get one, let your dog wear it. Uh, but 100% of those proceeds will go to MDA, okay? And so that will be on from 8arbitration.com. That's the only way you're going to be able to find them. 
get on from adarbitration.com. You'll see store. Click on that, and it'll be able, it'll pull up some shirts. Like I said, he's got a lot he's going to put on there that you can get. Also, if you want him to write something on there, you all, some of y'all like my phrases that I say. <laughs> y'all call them my choreisms. Um, if you want that on there, let him know, and he'll be able to put that on a shirt for you. Um, and, and that way, you can go around town with the Formate Arbitration shirt on. <laughs> We'll have a day at the, at Boston's national convention, uh, a day where everybody wears their shirts and just piss the hell out of the NLC with that. How's that sound? <laughs> okay, let's get into this roll away runaway. Uh, there's a new push on this thing. Uh, they had stand up talks. Came out safety captain did stand up talks about roll away runaway. It's the it's the one point where management will be the most dishonest is a rollaway runaway accident, and also the VMF the vehicle maintenance facility will be the most dishonest. In this case file that I've put up is the perfect example of that. Uh, you had a carrier out of my station. Her name is Jan Bowman. She's since retired, uh, but she had a rollaway runaway, and I was off that day. So she calls me. She's like, "Hey, I just had a rollaway runaway. Are you okay? I'm fine." But I was out of the vehicle. I had the keys in my hand, and I turned around. The vehicle was rolling down the street. It was a very short street uh, with curved side delivery. And she was getting out to deliver a package, and the vehicle rolled away. Well, Brian Buttry, who was my real good friend, was my assistant steward at the time. So I called him. I said, hey, where are you at? I'm out here delivering. I said, go out immediately to Jan Bowman out here on a route uh, she had a rollaway runaway and check out that vehicle. So management comes out. Brian's already out there checking it out. Management comes out and Brian's like, Hey, this steering column is jacked. There's no key in it, but you can put it in neutral. You can put it in drive with no key in it. Um, the steering column is jacked up. And so he shows everybody at the scene safety district, safety cabin. Do you see where this steering column is jacked up? Yes. The MPU at the time, do you see where they're still in columns jacked up? He came out there. Yeah. VMF comes out there. And VMF says, nothing wrong with the steering column. Ask the same people that Brian just had agree that the steering column was messed up. The VMF comes out. Hey, do you see the, there's nothing wrong with the steering column? I see that. There's nothing wrong with this. You can't do this. I see that. While Brian is actually showing them that it's messed up. Okay, because the VMF will never take responsibility for their vehicles being out of repair. Okay, they will always say it's the carrier's fault. So know that when you go into a rollaway runaway accident, the VMF 100% of the time will put blame on the carrier. They will always say that nothing is wrong with the vehicle. And this case file is a perfect example of that. And I'll tell you about... Uh, before I get into that case file, I did have uh, an arbitration in front of arbitrator Lawrence Roberts uh, when I was an advocate. Now, back in this, the emergency placement was in front of arbitrator Roberts. Uh, I was the formal A back then, uh, or the informal. Uh, I was not an advocate at the time, okay? I had stepped down. Remember when I told you I walked out of it? I had walked out of this time at this time. So Dave Clark had been back at the Formal A. He was the Formal A representative that brought forward my case. But Arbitrator Roberts was the arbitrator for the emergency placement. That's in the file that um, Jeremy's going to put up. 
But this decision here will also be put up, and this was when I was an advocate, and it was back in 2012, and it's C30421, 30421, and this was a rollaway runaway at, at, uh, out of Nashville, and it's, the carrier had also failed to report the rollaway runaway. It was an elderly gentleman, felt terrible for him, but he got out of the vehicle, it rolls down the street and hits a, a hydrant, I believe, and just peeled the side of it off like a tuna can. So he just drives it back and doesn't tell anybody. This was on a Saturday. The sub comes in on Monday. <laughs> He's like, what the hell's wrong with this vehicle? There's no side to it. So he goes in there and they and they uh, get uh, this guy for uh, not reporting a rollaway runaway accident. This is uh, the one where he talks about the 1769 that I always talk about getting. And uh, it's on page 12. I'll start on page 11. Okay. On page 11, it says, furthermore, the grievance is a long-term employee, and it was obvious the employer failed to include this very important factor in their consideration of discipline. So there's you something good for tenure. And according to Article 16, part of the just cause standard includes a showing the discipline is corrective rather than punitive. And in this particular case, I was certainly convinced the action of the agency was certainly punitive rather than corrective in nature. In management's position, it is mentioned that this is the grievance fourth accident in three years. However, there's nothing on this record to show that the grievance was either at fault or had been disciplined. This indicates to me that the employer has fallen short in meeting the progressive discipline standard of Article 16. Now, this is for a rollaway runaway. Listen to that. This indicates to me that the employer has fallen short in meeting the progressive discipline standard of Article 16. And without a previous record for similar infractions... I did not consider a runaway rollaway one of those egregious acts deserving of removal on the first offense. That is fantastic language because anytime you deal with a rollaway runaway, they're going to fire us. We're being removed. Okay? So that decision right there is absolutely gold for advocates. Okay? And I'd put that in my contentions. I'll read again. And without a previous record for similar infractions... I did not consider a runaway rollaway one of those egregious acts deserving of removal on the first offense. The progression in this case went from a written warning for a seatbelt infraction to a removal action. The accident in this case, given the grievance work record and past discipline, or lack thereof in this case, is certainly not deserving of a removal action. In fact, the employer's own PS form 1769 accident report indicates Preventable action to be provide training, instruction. The same form did not characterize the accident as being serious in nature. This simply does not coincide with the discipline that was issued in this case. Given the fact the accident was labeled as not being serious, I am of the considered opinion that removal action taken by the services in this instance is clearly punitive. The same report indicated the agreement had left the keys in the ignition, however, there wasn't any other evidence either in the case file or produced at the hearing to substantiate that claim. The union insisted that the vehicle moved as the grievant returned. It was the union's explanation that the vehicle would have moved as soon as the grievant dismounted had it not been placed in park in the brake set. To that end, I agree. However, if the dismount procedure was properly followed with the wheels turned towards the curb, the vehicle would have stopped short of striking the fire hydrant. 
Management also claimed there to be a zero-tolerance policy within the Tennessee District regarding violations of proper dismount procedures. However, other than a verbal mention, there was no evidence in this case filed to show the existence of such a policy. Even though the discipline is clearly punitive, does not absolve the grieving of all responsibility, for I am the considered opinion that had the grieving that curved the wheels, a rollaway runaway would not have occurred. In this case, it's really insignificant whether or not the grievance had the keys in hand, whether or not the vehicle was running or the brake was set, etc. The fact of the matter is that a runaway occurred and could have probably been prevented by the grievance, and with that reasoning, the grievance must accept some responsibility. Furthermore, the grievance should have immediately reported the accident to management. There was absolutely no excuse for that not happening in this instant case. And then he reduced it to a suspension. So uh, get that one. That'll be very good for you. Um, but let's get into this case file because it's, it's long. I'm not going to read all of it, but there are things in here you have to get. Okay. You will have to get for your, your case file. There are forms in here. I don't know if you've ever heard of them before. There are reports in here. I don't know if you've ever heard of them before. Uh, there are things that I have written that you can use. There are things from people that I have contacted that you can use talking about these vehicles. And this was back in 2011, I believe. So just imagine these vehicles are still be driven today in 2023. And these reports are how the vehicles uh, were back uh, in 2011. So uh, get this case file and look at it extensively. All right. When you first get into the case file, it's going to have emergency placement decision on it. And it's from 2011. And it's also from arbitrator Roberts. And he talks about when management went to the site. Now, the date of the hearing is July 19th of 2011. That's my birthday. Isn't that sweet? So the day of the hearing is July 19th of 2011. I had already stepped away from the formal A at that time. Um, but this decision is very good because what happened was she reported a runaway rollaway accident. Management goes out to the scene, puts her on emergency placement. And so to me, I'm thinking, why'd you put them on emergency placement? What was the emergency? And of course, they're going to say a uh, violation of safety rules and regulations. But she's saying she did everything right. So how do you know at the time that she violated any kind of safety rule or regulation? And so that was one of our biggest things. But uh, that B-team decision is in there. And I'll read some of it to you. And I'm just going to start reading, if you don't mind. Um, and then that way you can take whatever you want out of it. it. says, there was a lot of evidence introduced in this matter. Interesting was the fact the employer presented a plethora of evidence to show that management made the right decision in this matter. The union also produced evidence to dispute management's claim. However, the written record in this matter clearly and rightfully challenges the employer's own position. It is clear. By even the context, the emergency placement letter cited above, dated 29th of March 2011, and the unchallenged joint Exhibit 2 indicating that the accident occurred on or about 1225 on that same date. That letter was dated and mailed to the agreement that very same day. The letter itself even states it was mailed via priority mail. Aside from all the evidence introduced at the hearing, this documentation provides one very clear admission to me. The grievance was placed on emergency placement solely as a result of the accident, period. Y'all remember that when you're doing your contentions, okay? That's a very good site for you as well. Like I said, get on there and get it out. 
I'll read it again. The grievance was placed on emergency placement solely as a result of the accident, period. There was absolutely little or no investigation. That is clear by the evidence introduced by the employer. And he goes over that. It is very clear that any evidence was merely an afterthought. The record shows the statement was dated March 30th, yet the emergency placement had already been decided on 29th of March. And given the time of the accident at approximately 1230 and the fact that the emergency placement letter, in order to be mailed by the same 29th March date, had to be completed prior to 530 or 6 o'clock to make the evening dispatch, there wasn't much time left for any type of reasonable investigation to have occurred. And I'm of the considered opinion that even though my personal criteria has been that snapshot of time given emergency placement, in this case, I do not believe that management had a reasonable opportunity to take a good picture of the facts of this matter. And so that's very good for you. Uh, this, is, uh, this case is one that one of the better ones I put together. And I think that it will benefit everybody that has a rollaway runaway. I'm going to read a statement from me uh, that's very detailed about my steps that I took once. Uh, it has Dave's Clark Formal A contentions, which he just referred to my uh, informal A contentions. Like I say, at informal, I, I take 14 days and I put together the case file, man. I don't let my formal A do my talking for me. And this is a perfect example of that, okay? It's got a lot of stuff in here y'all won't need. It's got the the B-team decision, which you may want to read because you probably have similar arguments that they'll use today. It's got several B-team decisions in there. It's 262 pages. It's got my 8190. My issue statement, did management violate Article 1619, Section 115 of the M39 Handbook, National Agreement when they placed letter carrier jambo in emergency placement and off-duty status on 329, alleging failure to follow safety regulations, zero tolerance policy. Uh, did management violate Articles 14 and 29 of the National Agreement when they failed to make every reasonable effort to assign letter carrier jambo to non-driving duties? Uh, just thought I'd take a shot at that and ended up with didn't need it. They issued her removal and they didn't even take it forward after this case file came forward because it, they did not want this stuff getting out in an arbitrator's decision, the stuff that I put in here that y'all are going to put in y'all's, okay? Now, here's the emergency placement letter, and it says, You're hereby notified that effective March 29, 2011, you're placed in a non-duty, non-pay status under the provisions of Article 16.7 of the National Agreement. The reason for this action is your failure to follow safety regulations and the zero-tolerance policy. Now, what does that say that she did? Always remember when you look at those charges, what did she do? What kind of safety regulation did we violate? It doesn't say anything about a rollaway runaway. Nothing. That's as vague as, as 16.7 as you'll ever read. It's, it's just a, a vague 16.7 template. And so I start questioning Tim about, Tim Frills as a supervisor, I start questioning him about the accident, the rollaway. And this is from 4111. I said, Is your investigation complete concerning the rollaway accident involving Jan Bowman? He said, No. I said, In the letter of emergency placement and off duty status, you stated this was a result of her failure to follow safety res regulations. Is that correct? Yes. Do you know that to be true since you have not completed your investigation? No. <laughs> so, and then I talk about Article 29. I read uh, M1289 to him. I said, this time I read the step four decision M1289. 
Supervisor Frill said he never heard of that, and he would check into it. I informed him that he was being punitive by not finding her work in the station until the investigation complete. He said he would check on that. Uh, I asked him about it. she had sufficient work. And I said, uh, Tim, I have just a few questions to ask so I can clarify some things. Is that okay? Yes. On the day of the rollaway accident, did Jan Bowman give him a statement on the scene? No, she did not. I asked her for a few questions. So you interviewed her. Well, I just asked a few questions. Did Jan Bowman insist on giving a statement or have Brian Buttry tell you she was ready to give a statement? No, she never said that, and Brian never said that. Did the word statement ever come up? Janet told me the only way she will give a statement is if Brian is present, but she never gave a statement. When you arrived on scene, were you the first person there? No, Brian was there already. Tim, were those keys in the vehicle when you arrived and looked in the vehicle? No, the keys are not in it. So when you observed the vehicle, there were no keys in the ignition? No. And the reason I asked him that is because management took the keys and put them in the ignition and took pictures of the keys in the ignition. And so I wanted to, Brian and Tim are the first two there. Those keys are not in ignition. She had them in her hand still because it rolled away without them. So when safety gets there, safety takes the keys, puts them in the ignition and takes a picture of it and says that the keys are still in ignition. So being as Tim was the second person on the scene, I asked him, Tim, were those keys in the vehicle when you arrived and looked in the vehicle? No, the keys are not in it. So when you observe the vehicle, there were no keys in the ignition. No. And so um, just want to make sure that they're being dishonest. The most important contractual language you'll have in a rollaway runaway accident is 413P. Okay. The most important contractual language you'll have in a rollaway runaway accident is 413P. Now, Brian was there, so it didn't apply. JB is dealing with one right now where management did not notify the branch president. Okay? And the reason that's critical, the reason that's critical is because in the rollaway that JB's dealing with, the young lady said she got out of the vehicle. She walked the package up, and when she walked it up, she's coming back. The vehicle starts rolling, and uh, she was in a cul-de-sac. And she said, I had the keys with me. The vehicle started rolling. Uh, I had it in park. And so management goes out there, and they don't call the branch president or notify the branch president promptly. That way we can get out there and do our own investigation. So they go out there, and they say, obviously, nothing's wrong with the vehicle. They take it to the VMF. Nothing's wrong with the vehicle. She said that the vehicle was in park, yet it still rolled away and the handbrake was set. They're saying none of those things had happened. That's the reason I made that video for JB of me doing that exact same thing. I had the vehicle in park, no keys in it. I pulled up the handbrake. I showed that there was no keys in the vehicle, and I very easily pulled the uh, gear shift down to neutral, and it rolled away. And so I'm going to show the arbitrator, hey, it could have happened. But we couldn't tell that it happened. We couldn't be definitive in our position because management didn't notify the branch president promptly so that he could get out there on the scene or she could get out there on the scene and investigate this for herself or have someone go out there and investigate it for themselves. So we're at a disadvantage there because management and the VMF said, the vehicle was in proper working condition, which they will always do. And this case file is a perfect example of that. But we could have gone out there and we could have shown, yes, in fact, 
it was exactly as the young lady said. You could pull the gear shift down. It would roll when it was the handbrake was set. Uh, but we couldn't. We couldn't show that because they didn't notify the branch president promptly so that we could go on the scene and, and investigate it for ourselves. If that doesn't happen in a rollaway runaway accident, and it's the biggest accident that we have where the branch president needs to be notified promptly because we're going to always say it's the vehicle's fault. Management and the VMF will always say it's the carrier's fault. So we need to go out there ourselves. And how we do that is 41-3P. And if they don't do that, we'll raise a huge procedural due process argument when they don't let us go to the scene to investigate it for ourselves, like this case. That's the reason I made that video for JB. I said, I know for a fact my vehicle would do that. Make me a video. So I put it in the parking lot of the, the postal service, <laughs> take the key out, I video the key's not in there, I pull up the handbrake, I take it, pull it down in the neutral with no key, vehicle just takes off rolling. And another thing we're going to be arguing is false park, and that's in these contentions as well. If you never heard of that, it's false park, okay? And that's one of the, one of the things we'll be arguing. It's got the I.I. in there, if y'all want to see that. It's got her statement, very good statement. Uh, it's got a customer statement that said she saw the vehicle rolling down and Jan had the keys in her hand. Uh, I asked her if she was okay. She said, yes, I clearly saw that the handbrake was set and the vehicle was in park. And that's what the customer stated. Uh, Brian Buttry's statement is there where he, where I called him and told him to go out there. And he talked about what he saw at the scene, which is one of the best things. And here's my statement. I'm going to read it. It's very long. Hopefully y'all don't mind if I read it. But it, it shows about the links I went to in this thing to help Miss Bowman. As to whom it may concern, on March 29, 2011, I was contacted at home by phone that one of the letter carriers in my station was involved in a rollaway runaway accident. Assistant shop steward Brian Butcher informed me that he was on scene and had major concerns about the safety of the postal vehicle. He informed me that the steering wheel would not lock into place when the key was removed from the steering column. He told me that he had expressed his concerns with Supervisor Tim Friels. He demonstrated that the wheel would not lock into place when the key was in or out of the ignition. Supervisor Friels acknowledged what Mr. Butcher was showing him. Now remember all this now for later. This is how management's going to do us if we don't do a, a thorough investigation. Like Brian did a fantastic job of writing this, uh, his statement. And he did a fantastic job of getting everybody out there involved saying, hey, do you see this? Do you see what's going on here with this vehicle? He did a magnificent job. And so remember all these things when management gets to their position, how they change on us, okay? At the time, Mr. Butchery said he expressed his concerns to acting safety manager Kim Alley, who was on scene. She moved the steering wheel herself and also acknowledged that, in fact, the steering wheel would not lock into place with the key in or out of the ignition. So when they talk about curving the wheels, locking the wheel and everything, it wouldn't do that. At the time, Mr. Butcher informed me that Miss Alley showed acting MCSO Mike Vaughn. He moved the wheel himself while the key was out of the ignition and was not able to get it to lock into place. On March 30th, 2011, I called the VMF and spoke with Supervisor Robert Montgomery. Now remember that name. I asked him when he was when was the last time vehicle 0238431 was taken in and serviced. He told me that it was serviced on February 23rd, 2011 and closed out on the 24th. 
I asked him what was the proper term for the pin that locked the steering wheel in place when the vehicle was turned off and the key was removed from the ignition. He said he didn't know what it was called. I ended my conversation with him at that time. On March 31, 2011, at 9 o'clock a.m., by phone, Ms. Alley, I asked Ms. Alley if Assistant Shop Steward Brian Buttry had indeed shown her that the steering wheel of the postal vehicle would not lock into place when the key was in or out of the ignition. She told me the key was in the vehicle when she got there. I said, I appreciate that, but that wasn't the question. I again asked her the same question. She admitted that she did witness for herself that the wheel would not lock into place when the key was in or out of the ignition. I then asked her if she had taken MCSO Mike Vaughn to the postal vehicle and shown him what she had seen. She said she could not remember. <laughs> remember that. I said that the accident was just two days ago, and she couldn't remember if she had shown Mr. Vaughn that the wheel lock wouldn't lock. She said it was just so busy she couldn't remember. I ended, my, I ended my interview with her at that time. Now, here's a safety district safety manager that says she couldn't remember from two days ago if she took the MCSO to the vehicle to show them the vehicle. When I tell you they lie on us and they'll go to great lengths to hurt us, remember that. I then contacted by phone MCSO Mike Vaughn at approximately 9.40 a.m. on the same day. I asked him if Miss Alley had shown him on the day of the accident how the wheel would not lock into place with the key in and out of the ignition. He said, yes, she did. <laughs> That's the same day now. I then asked Mr. Vaughn if he indeed saw how the wheel would not lock into place with the key in or out of the ignition. He told me that the key was in the vehicle when he got there. <laughs> I then stated that he and Miss Alley had, the part, had that part down pat, but that wasn't the question. I then asked the question again, and he said, yes, he did see for himself that the wheel would not lock into place with the key in or out of the ignition. I ended my interview at that time. So do y'all see what happened? The MCSO and the district safety captain both answered my question with what? The key was in the ignition when we got there. Because <laughs> they put it in there. The key wasn't in the ignition when Brian Butcher got there or when the supervisor, Tim Frills, got there. So who put it in the ignition? One of them two did because what's the answer to the questions? The key was in the ignition when we got there. And what I say, that's not my question. You got that part down pat, but that wasn't the question I asked you. If you could answer the question I asked you, I'd appreciate it. On Saturday, April 2nd, when I returned from my route, Supervisor Tim Frills informed me that he had gone to the VMF early that day and inspected the vehicle for himself. I asked Mr. Frills why we had done that, and he stated that he had called the VMF the day prior, and someone told him that as of the first Friday, the vehicle hadn't been touched. On April 6, 2011, I returned to work for my day off. The vehicle that had been involved in the rollaway had been returned to the post office. Supervisor Frills handed me a letter dated March 30, 2011. It was from National VML Supervisor Robert Montgomery. Now remember all of this. This is what y'all are going to be dealing with when y'all are dealing with a rollaway runaway accident. It was from Nashville VMF Supervisor Robert Montgomery. It stated that the vehicle had been thoroughly checked over by his lead technician, Russell Tummins. I found that letter odd because it was dated the same day that I had called Mr. Montgomery. In the letter, he describes the locking pin, Paul, inside the transmission itself looks, itself looks the transmission output shaft, drive shaft, and prevents any movement of the vehicle. He had informed me on the same day that he didn't know what the, the pin was called. 
He then went on to say in his letter that the vehicle went through several component checks and all the conclusion of the test, he found the vehicle to be safe in proper working condition. So y'all see how much they'll lie? This is the VMS supervisor. I called him and I said, hey, what's that pin called that locks the transmission into place? What locks the steering column into place when the steering wheel shifts? Y'all know what I'm talking about? When you turn it, it'll lock it. I said, what's that pin called that does that? I don't know what that's called. I got his statement. It was the very same day I called him, and he named it. The locking pin or the PAWL, P-A-W-L, inside the transmission itself looks like the transmission output show. So he lied to me. I caught him lying. But he said the vehicle is in safe, proper working condition. On the same day, April 6 of 2011, I called city care Scott Tomlinson, who was driving the vehicle in question. I asked him if he had checked the vehicle to see if, in fact, it was fixed. He said they would pull over and check. I asked him if the wheel would lock into place with the key out of the ignition. He said, no, it wouldn't. I then asked if the key would roll in reverse with the handbrake set and the vehicle turned off. He said, yes, it will. He then said he could turn the vehicle off, take the key out of the ignition, and easily move the gear shift from park to reverse. I told him that vehicle was unsafe and instructed him to deliver what little route he had left on foot. Route 10 is a majority walking, hopping route, and, and had a few loops left. When I returned to the station, I informed Supervisor Field that the vehicle was unsafe. I then put in a request for information form on the form I requested to videotape with audio that FFV. The union would like to videotape this vehicle inside and out for possible safety violations. On April 7th of 2011, I asked City Letter Carrier Lisa Yarbrough, who was delivering Route 10 that day, what vehicle she had. She informed me that she had the key for that vehicle. I told her I was not going to let her drive the vehicle. I then filled out a safety form and a vehicle repair form on that vehicle and the fact that management was going to let someone continue to drive the unsafe vehicle, Mr. Frills instructed Miss Yarbrough to take another vehicle. A few minutes later, Supervisor Frills told me I had a phone call from MCSO Mike Vaughn. Mr. Vaughn asked me, uh, what I wanted to video on the vehicle. I informed him that the vehicle was still unsafe and I wanted it on video showing that nothing had been done to fix it. He then said that my request was too vague. <laughs> I said I didn't agree. My request stated that I wanted to video the vehicle for possible safety violations. He said he needed more than that to approve the request. Now listen to this. He needed more than that to approve the request. I asked him, well, what would you want me to put on the request to make him feel better? He asked who was going to be with me, and I informed him President Dave Clark was going to be with me. He said, put it down. Dave Clark and union representative will be performing their investigation of the vehicle. I then added that to my request for the, and faxed it to Mr. Vaughn. Mr. Vaughn denied my request <laughs> on April 2011, stating that in part that neither Dave Clark nor Corey Walton is qualified to conduct vehicle inspections on postal vehicles. <laughs> So I asked the MCSO, what do you want me to put down there that where you'll approve it? Put this down. I put it down. He denied it anyway. They're trying to keep us from investigating that vehicle. Also on April 7, 2011, I asked President of Branch 4, Dave Clark, to come and see the vehicle himself. At 10 a.m., he arrived at Bellmead Station. Mr. Clark, Assistant Shop Steward Brian Buttry, Safety Captains Mike Wilson and Steve Weekly, and myself performed a safety check of the vehicle. Mr. Buttry took his key from Route 522 and started Route 510's vehicle. 
He then took Route 510's key and started the vehicle. I asked Mr. Butchie to pull the vehicle into the alleyway, which he did. The alleyway has a slight incline. I then asked him to put the vehicle into park, which he did. I asked him to turn off the vehicle and remove the key, and he did. I asked him to move the gear selector to reverse, which he did with ease. I asked him to do it again, and he did it with the same result. I then asked him to keep the vehicle in reverse and with his foot on the brake, apply the handbrake. I then asked him to remove his foot from the brake and the vehicle immediately began to rolling down the alleyway. I asked him to pull back up and do it again, which he did the same result. I then asked him to turn off the vehicle and remove the key from the ignition. I asked him to see if the wheel would lock into place, which it would not. It turned completely around in both directions. At that point, at that, President Clark himself moved the wheel in both directions. I then asked Mr. Butcher to start the vehicle and put it in the drive with his foot on the brake. I then instructed him to turn off the vehicle while it remained in drive, and he did. I then asked him to remove the key from the ignition, which he did with ease. I asked him to do it again, which he did with the same results. All five of us witnessed this firsthand. <clears throat> so here you have the VMF saying, that, hey, we did all these checks. The vehicle is completely safe to be driven. There's nothing wrong with this vehicle. It's completely the carrier's fault. They send that same vehicle out there, and we're doing all of these things just a few days after they send it back. We're showing, without question, that this vehicle is still unsafe. That's the reason we need people at the scene. That's the reason 413P will always be a main argument of ours if management refuses to allow us to be at the scene to see the vehicle. And it gets, it gets worse for management. It gets worse for them. On April 8, 2011, Supervisor Tim Frills informed me that the VMF was coming to get the vehicle. I asked Mr. Frills if it would be okay if I showed whomever came to get the vehicle my concerns, and he said yes, that would be fine. At approximately 10 a.m., a gentleman entered the post office, and Tim informed him that I wanted to show him my concerns about the vehicle. He introduced himself as Supervisor Robert Montgomery. Now remember this guy's name. Supervisor Robert Montgomery. And I'm going to show you how low down this line son of a bitch is. He introduced himself as Supervisor Robert Montgomery. Mr. Montgomery, Safety Captain Steve Weekly, City Carrier Scott Tomlinson, who was the sub for 510, and myself went to look at the vehicle. While well, walking to the vehicle, I asked Mr. Montgomery if anyone outside the VMF had access to this vehicle while it was down there. He said no. I asked him if the vehicle was in a secure place to keep people from getting to it. He said yes, only people at the VMF had access to that vehicle. I asked him if he was sure, and he said yes. I then informed him that Supervisor Tim Friels had informed me that on Saturday, April 2nd, he had gone to the VMF and did his own inspection of the vehicle. Mr. Montgomery said he doesn't work on Saturday, so he didn't know about that, but it shouldn't have happened. At that time, we arrived at Route 510's vehicle. I asked Mr. Montgomery if he was the one who had written the letter stating that the vehicle was in safe, proper working condition, and he said yes. I said, good. You're just the one I need to see. At that time, I asked City Care Scott Thomas to enter the vehicle and pull it out into the alleyway. When the vehicle was in the alleyway, I asked Mr. Montgomery to step up to the driver's side door so he could observe what, Mr. what my concerns were. At that time, I asked Mr. Thomason to place the vehicle in park, turn off the vehicle, and remove the key, which he did. 
I then asked him to move the gear selector to reverse, which he did. Mr. Montgomery then stated that Mr. Tomlinson had to use a little force to do that. Remember that. Mr. Montgomery then stated that Mr. Tomlinson had to use a little force to do that. I instructed Mr. Tomlinson to do it again, but much slower. Mr. Tomlinson then returned the gear, shift select, gear selector back to park and with two fingers moved the gear selector with ease to reverse. I asked him to do it again, and he did. Mr. Montgomery stated it definitely shouldn't do that. I then asked Mr. Tomlinson to apply the handbrake, and while the vehicle is off and the key removed from the ignition, firmly put his foot on the brake. I then asked him to place the vehicle in reverse and remove his foot from the brake, which he did. The vehicle immediately began rolling down the hill. I then instructed Mr. Thomason to do it again. Mr. Montgomery stated that the handbrake wasn't high enough, so Mr. Thomason pulled it higher. I asked Mr. Montgomery if he was satisfied, and he said yes. Mr. Thomason again removed his foot from the brake, and the vehicle immediately began rolling down the hill. I asked Mr. Montgomery if he understood why I was concerned that the vehicle, about the vehicle, and he said, yes. I then asked Mr. Thompson to turn the steering wheel while the vehicle is off and the key removed, which he did. He turned the, vehicle, he turned the wheel in both directions completely around. I asked Mr. Montgomery, was he satisfied with that, and he said, yes. I then instructed Mr. Thompson to start the vehicle and place it in the drive, which he did. I told him while the vehicle was still in drive to turn the vehicle off, which he did. I then asked him to remove the key, which he did with ease. I instructed him to repeat that scenario, and he did. I asked Mr. Montgomery again, did he see why I was concerned about this vehicle? And he said, that's why it's good for me to come and see these things firsthand. Now I understand what you're talking about and can no longer say that this vehicle is safe. Now that's Montgomery. I can no longer say that this vehicle is safe. I then asked Mr. Montgomery if it was safe to say that they did not perform a thorough investigation of the vehicle, and he said, yes, they just do a few spot checks on them when they come down. He then said that if the gear selector has a little play in them, then they will look further into them. When I returned inside the post office, Mr. Montgomery uh, came in with the key to the spare vehicle. I informed Mr. Montgomery that a mechanic down at the VMF had informed me that the handbrakes of the VFS were not meant to keep the vehicle from rolling in reverse, only from rolling forward. He said, that's right. Y'all remember that? Y'all remember that? The VMF had informed me that the handbrakes for the VFFs were not meant to keep the vehicle from rolling in reverse, only from rolling forward. He said, that's right. He then began to explain how terrible the braking mechanism was on the VFS, and they constantly had to change them out. He said that the braking mechanism in these vehicles was shoddy and looks makeshift. He then said that the pads on these vehicles are holding his fingers about a quarter inch apart this thick. He then stated that he would have to get permission from whoever was leading the investigation to tear the engine apart because he wanted to see what the problem was. I then said, so you're admitting there's a problem with that vehicle? He said, yes, it should, shouldn't be doing all that it's doing. I then informed him that Mr. Frills in conducting the investigation showed he would have to okay it. He said he wasn't sure because the only people that had called him were I and Mike Vaughn. Mr. Montgomery then told me it was very difficult to simulate carrier conditions where they were at. He said it was a flat surface and just very difficult. After Mr. Montgomery had left the vehicle, Supervisor Frills informed me that Mr. Montgomery had told him that the carriers had shown him about the vehicle 
he deemed the vehicle unsafe. Now, that's not in this file, but the file, the removal file, this Montgomery, the one who just said that, wrote a statement. And in the statement, he said that the carriers with great force were able to get that gear shift down into reverse, that it took great force, they had to strain, and that the vehicle was not unsafe, but it was due to the carrier's malpractice and the carriers in there not knowing what they had done to the vehicle before he got there, but it was because they had these carriers out there that were basically bullying him and yanking on this gear shift was the only reason that they were able to get it down. That's exactly what he said. That's exactly what he wrote in his statement. You know why? Because he was not going to be at fault for that vehicle getting back out on the, on the street. Because he had given it a clean bill of health. A clean bill of health. This vehicle is completely unsafe. The very first day it got there, I asked Scott, take, take a look at it. It's unsafe. I had him come out there. He looked at it thoroughly with us. I said, is that vehicle safe? No, it's not safe. And then he goes back and he lies. The reason that's funny is when we go to the emergency placement, the hearing, now they dropped the removal once I got all these, these things in there, but they go to the emergency placement. This Robert Montgomery, he's there. Mike Vaughn, the MCSO, comes out. And Mike Vaughn and I have a long history. And so uh, Brian's there as a witness. I'm there. I think Steve is there. Here's Robert Montgomery there, the guy that lied. So I come down there. Mike Vaughn comes out. He's like, oh, they done got the heavyweights to come down. I said, man, I'm only down here for one reason. Mike Vaughn said, why? I said, for this line motherfucker right here. And pointed straight at that supervisor, Montgomery. Mike Vaughn said, Corey, Corey, Corey. I said, no, Mike. I said, brother, one thing I can't stand is a lying motherfucker. I said, this dude right here, you're a lying piece of shit, man, for what you said. I said, you came out there and you saw exactly what was wrong with that vehicle. And then you're going to provide a statement later on saying that with great force we did that. I said, you know you're a lying piece of shit. I said, but Mike, this guy right here is the only reason I'm here. <laughs> I swear to God, that's what I said. That dude's looking at me and he refused to testify. He wasn't going there to testify. But it didn't matter. We won anyway. But uh, that's why I hate him, man, so bad. That's why I hate him. This dude knows for a fact he lied, and he was willing to do that to cost a young lady her job. This guy was willing to lie to cost a young lady her job. So these people in my union that are giving them just safe travels through falsifying shit, do not, ain't worth a nickel to me. <laughs> you ain't worth a nickel to me. If you're in the union and you're giving these these managers and supervisors just carte blanche what they want to do with us as far as safe falsification and and uh, hero falsification and clock ring falsification and all that stuff. If that's you, you ain't got nothing for me. Uh, Brian's uh, uh, Brian's statement is in there. All these statements are really good. If you want to take the time to read it, you may not. The other safety captain, he wrote a very good statement. He says, uh, this vehicle had been returned to us a few days earlier, stating it had been inspected and was safe for the carrier to drive. As one of the safety captains, I am deeply concerned that a vehicle had been returned to us after a rollaway accident in the same unsafe condition as before. I'd hate to think an innocent child or anyone for that matter would be injured or, God forbid, killed because this vehicle was returned in such a manner. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, there's a 1767 in there that I filled out back in 2011. Uh, there's my information request to videotape it that was denied, which was funny. Uh, 
then Mike Vaughn's his uh, denials in there, which looked good for me because I'm trying to investigate it, and he says he's going to deny it. Uh, it says, Dave Clark and union representatives were notified immediately when the accident occurred and had a chance to come to the scene and conduct an on-scene investigation, which is completely untrue. He lied on that. We were not notified. Management at no time reached out to us and notified us. But because Brian went out there, I was able to catch him. Uh, another uh, <clears throat> statement from Steve Weekly, who's my safety captain. Dave Clark was at the scene. And here's a, uh, a veteran mechanic that inspected uh, a vehicle in Chattanooga. And he talks about the worn linkage, the false park. And the emergency brakes uh, won't stop a vehicle in reverse. And this is his statement I got out of another, another file. When FFV such and such was brought in the VMF to be inspected for mechanical problems after a rollaway accident, I went to my supervisor, Janice Orr, to ask that I not be the lead mechanic on the inspection since I was the regular mechanic for this truck. I wanted no conflict of interest in this investigation. I did some simple tests for my own concern. Various tests were done, but none under the exact conditions that the truck was in at the time of the rollaway. I voiced my concerns immediately and repeatedly that the tests done were not 100% conclusive. Now, y'all remember this when you're dealing with rollaway runaways, what this guy's fixing to tell you. Several years ago, this same situation came up with another FFE. I would pull this information, but the maintenance jacket is purged about once a year. The other CRV rolled away and was brought to the VMF to determine if there were any mechanical problems. Just as this situation, everything just seemed to be working properly. But it was sent out to a local dealer, and only after pulling the transmission was it determined there was a mechanical problem. I have also expressed to my supervisor that after driving a vehicle all day under the conditions a letter carrier would be experienced are not the same as the tests conducted on this vehicle. At this point, my supervisor told me that I just needed to keep my nose out of it. Now, here's a guy saying, look, when we do these tests, the vehicle is cool. The brakes are cool. Uh, it's not the same as the conditions that the carriers are out there every day starting and stopping, starting and stopping. We're not doing the same test. The vehicle is not in the same uh, condition as when it's coming there. And his supervisor told him, keep your nose out of it. I put that in every case file. This was back in 2010. I put that in every. I put that in y'all's. If y'all in California, put this in there. He said, "There's uh, the best. Only assumptions have been made concerning the cause of this CRV rollaway. There are too many variables to determine what may have caused this incident. And one being, after this make of vehicle has been driven all day, applying the brakes and park brake repeatedly, the park park brake becomes less effective." And given a steep enough incline, it could potentially cause the park brake not to hold. I'm a certified mechanic and one of the lead mechanics at the Chattanooga VMF. I don't care if it's from Chattanooga. I'm putting that in every rollaway runaway file. Here's a guy saying, look, I'm telling y'all, when we do these tests, they're not the same as the condition at the time of the rollaway because the vehicle's already cooled down. The carrier's been out there all day, starting and stopping, starting and stopping. When you come in here, it's cooled down. It's not the same test. And what does this supervisor tell him? Keep your nose out of it. Let's fire the carrier. Can't be our fault. Uh, then it's got a good uh, column in there. Steward investigation uncovers mechanical flaws. A very good 
article for you, and it basically is the same thing that I did out there at my station. <clears throat> I'm not going to read all that to you. We'll be here all night. Then I called. It, when, when the VMF sends the vehicles out, say if they had to put a new transmission in there, they will send them out to ours was four to two rivers, the service center. And I got that from the VMF. When y'all have something that y'all can't fix, what do you do with it? And they tell me, we send it to this place over here and they fix it. Find those things out when y'all have a rollaway and runaway. Find them out. Where do y'all send vehicles? Call the VMF. Where do y'all send vehicles? Uh, when y'all can't repair them, we send them here. Well, this is me calling the Two Rivers Ford and talking to them about this. And this was devastating to management's case devastating and i would put this in all of y'all's files i don't care if it is from me it shows because all these are on the same chassis okay i called to her ford and talked with a man named john i asked who is the most experienced mechanic that could answer a few questions about the postal ffvs they service the post office vehicles as witnessed by the vehicle jacket sent by the vmf he stayed that would be Paul Legnon, master mechanic. He then went and got Mr. Legnon. So when I got, when I requested the, the vehicle jacket, each vehicle has a jacket. That's all the repair stuff in there. When they've been repaired, what they had done to it. Uh, Tours Ford came up. That's where they sent it. He went and got Mr. Legnon. I introduced myself to Mr. Legnon and asked if he wouldn't mind answering a few questions. And he said that would be fine. I discussed thoroughly the problems we found with the steering column in the vehicle that was in the rollaway accident. How you could put the vehicle in drive and with still running and in drive, turn the vehicle off and remove the key. I also told him how the vehicle's wheel would not lock into place with the key out of the ignition. I told him how the gear indicator could be moved from park to reverse with the key out of the ignition. Mr. Langline then stated, Mr. Walton, I can tell you that those steering columns were simply not designed to handle the wear and tear that y'all put them through. The constant starting and stopping wears out the components in that steering column. Those steering columns have too many aluminum parts for that. They simply wear out. I then asked him if there were any way that the key should be able to be removed from the ignition while the vehicle was still running and in drive. He said, absolutely not. Under no circumstances should you be able to remove that key from the ignition while it's running, regardless of what you're doing to it. That key should never come out while it's in gear. I see the same things with UPS trucks. They just simply wear out. Those columns are just about all aluminum. They will wear out. I thanked him, and that was the end of my interview, and then I put his name in there and his phone number in case management at the Formal A wanted to make a joint call and ask him if that's exactly what he said. But here's a master mechanic, and he's saying that the Mr. Walton, I can tell you that those steering columns were simply not designed to handle the wear and tear that y'all put on them, put them through. Put that in y'all's file. Devastating. Devastating. Feds to probe Ford Explorer Mercury Mountaineers SUV transmission dangers. Put this in every one of y'all's case files. It says the feds to probe to probe Ford Explorer, Mercury Mountaineers, SUV transmission dangers. And why is that important for us? That's the chassis that these FFEs sit on. That's the chassis that these FFEs sit on is that Ford Explorer chassis, okay? So here's your good article there. I'm not going to read all these articles to you, okay? It has something in there called False Park. 
That's going to be very critical for y'all, okay? Very critical for y'all. False park, because sometimes when you get in there, you'll put the vehicle, what you think is park, it's not in park. The gear shift doesn't go all the way. So you can you think that it's in park, it's called false park. It says the park to reverse or false park defect is sometimes described in different terms such as unintentional rearward movement, unintended rearward movement, unintentional reverse, unintended reverse, unintentional acceleration, unintended acceleration. So it gives all these things it talks about false park, which these vehicles will do. You think that it's in park? It is not. It's called false park. It's absolutely still in neutral. False park, a deadly transmission defect. The transmission defect explained the false park or park to reverse defect is a flaw in a vehicle's transmission in which it is possible for the driver unknowingly to place the transmission shift selector into a position between park and reverse during normal vehicle operations. When a vehicle is in false park, it appears to, to the driver that the vehicle is in fully in park. However, the transmission is neither in park nor in hydraulic reverse. Instead, it is an unstable position between the two gears. Slight movements can cause the vehicle to self-shift into reverse. When the vehicle is running, this will cause the vehicle to move backwards, unexpectedly, under power. If the driver exits the vehicle with the engine running to retrieve an item, lock a house, door, etc., a vehicle in false park can shift into power reverse, running over the driver or bystander. Now, why is that important here? Because we have already shown that with the key out of it not running, I can move that gear selector, right? I can with a with a key out of it, and in park, handbrake set, that vehicle can still move. If I think that I have that vehicle in park and it's in false park, it's between park and reverse, but it looks like it's in park and I take the key out and I set the handbrake and that vehicle is in false park, I've already shown that it can roll even with the handbrake set. I've already shown that it can roll away. So when you're making your contentions, make sure you put this in there about false park. My carrier said they did everything right. Got the key out. Vehicle in, in park, handbrake set, and the vehicle rolled away. Could it have been in false park? If it could have been, if there's the slightest chance that it could have been, that could be the difference in getting the carrier back to work. Okay? So make sure we're contending false park. The carrier said, I, I did everything I was supposed to do. I did everything I was supposed to do. Did we check false park? If we were not allowed to go out there at the scene, 41.3p, with a JCAM, 41.3p, if we were not allowed to go out there to the scene, we can't determine for ourselves if it could have been false park. Make that contention. 41.3p is going to be your most devastating argument if they do not call the branch president promptly. Okay? So that we can get somebody out there to check that vehicle ourselves. Because the VMF, they're going to lie to you every time, just like we caught them here. So all that's in here about false park. Then I got the vehicle repair logs in there. I wanted all the vehicle repair logs. Now, I want you all to re listen to this. Now, here's Robert Montgomery. Now, remember Brian Buttry, my assistant steward, called Lisa, uh, called um, Kim Alley over there, the district safety manager, called Mike Vaughn over there and said, hey, look, you see all the problems with this gearing, steering column? See all the problems here? Listen to this guy's statement. On March 29, 2011, our VMF was contacted with a cell 
with a call for recovering a rollaway vehicle. I, Robert Montgomery, sent my mechanic, Joel Lawson, to Cardin Avenue to retrieve the rollaway. The vehicle was stuck on an approximately two feet high decorative wall in a customer's yard. The rear wheels had dropped off behind the wall and the frame was sitting on the top of the wall. As Mr. Lawson was hooking the wrecker up to the vehicle, the station supervisor checked the vehicle and informed my mechanic that the vehicle's park brake was off and ready to be pulled out. Mr. Lawson then continued on with recovering the vehicle off the wall and onto the street. Once on the street, Mr. Lawson and the supervisor, accompanied by the safety officer, did an on-the-spot operations check of the vehicle. My mechanic demonstrated that with the key out of the locking cylinder and in hand, the steering wheel was locked into place and could not move. Now, do you remember Mike Va- <laughs> Brian Buttry having Kim Alley and Mike Vaughn come over and say, hey, look, do you see this steering wheel will not lock into place? Do you see it won't lock into place? Both of them had to answer to me when I asked them about that steering wheel locking into place. They said, no, it would not lock into place. Here's their, here's their mechanic. He said, my mechanic demonstrated that with the key out of the locking cylinder and in hand, the steering wheel was locked into place and could not move. Y'all see what I'm talking about? The gear shift lever also could not be moved from the park position. All these things we did in front of this son of a bitch. He also tested the vehicle's parking brake and determined that the brake held the vehicle properly and prevented the truck from moving even while the vehicle was in gear which we easily dispelled when they sent it back out there. Everyone on scene was satisfied, and the truck was returned to the VMF. (laughs) Slide bitch. The next morning, I sent my lead technician, Russell Tummins, to go thoroughly check the vehicle here at the VMF. Mr. Tummins visually and manually inspected each of the three components involved in holding the vehicle from moving. The first component checked was the key and steering wheel. When the key was removed and in hand, the shifter cannot be moved from the park position. When the shifter is in the park position, a locking pin, Paul, now this is the same day I called him. Remember me said he didn't know what it was called? A locking pin of Paul inside the transmission itself locks the transmission output shaft, drive shaft, and prevents any movement of the vehicle. Also, the steering wheel locking mechanism is working properly and looks the steering wheel from being able to be turned in any direction while the key is out and in hand. The second component verified was the parking brake system. Mr. Thomas placed the vehicle in reverse and allowed the truck to roll backwards a short distance, then applied the parking brake. The vehicle came to an abrupt halt and complete stop. Completely false. Mr. Thomas then placed the vehicle in the drive and attempted to move forward, and the truck did not move at all. The third component checked is a transmission gear selector. At that point, he attempted to remove the key from the locking cylinder while the truck was in drive. It did not come out. He then placed the vehicle into the remain, uh, remaining gear selections of the 1, 2, neutral, and reverse. The key, once again, was not able to be removed from the locking cylinder. Only when the truck shifter selector was placed in the park position was the key able to be removed and placed in the pocket. Now, that's the one, if y'all remember when I asked him, I said, are you, are you the one who wrote that statement about how safe it was? Yes. And I said, you're just the one I need to talk to. This is a statement I'm talking about. When I got this, I knew this guy was lying. I said, you're just the man I need to talk to. Come on down here. Let's look at this vehicle. Every one of those things that he just wrote in that statement were false. Every single thing that he said they looked at, he lied. I was able to disprove every single thing in that parking lot with him watching. He watched every single thing that I did. Everything that he said right there, 
I disproved it. Scott Tomlinson did it right there in front of him. That's the reason you don't take anything for granted on these things. Y'all do your own inspection of these vehicles because VMF management, they're going to lie. Now here's Joe Lawson, the guy who went out there and got the vehicle. I was dispatched to Cardin Avenue to retrieve a FFV that was stuck on a rock wall. Once on scene, I assessed the situation and planned out a method of extracting the FFV with minimal damage to the wall that it had come to rest on and vehicle. Once I figured out a way to extract the FFV, I attached the winch cable from my record to the FFV. When the FFV was secured to the cable, the station supervisor placed the FFV in neutral. Once everyone was clear of the FFV, I began to extract the FFV. Once the FFV was on level ground, I placed the FFV shift selector in park and set the park brake. I then proceeded to inspect the vehicle for any damage that could not be seen from before. The FFV appeared just to have cosmetic damages to the body in front of the right rear wheel, right side cover glass, right side mirrors, and some body scratches rub marks. While I was inspecting the FFV, the station supervisor asked me to check to see if the shifter, the key cylinder, and the park brake was all working properly. I demonstrated all without any problems. The station supervisor called the safety officer, and I demonstrated the same to her. Both the station supervisor and the safety officer said they had seen enough and left. Y'all remember that? Now, my guy, when we were there, we showed him the exact opposite of that. How is that possible? I called them to verify it, and they verified it with me. Now, how is it possible this guy's out there, everything's working properly? My guy's at the scene, nothing's working properly. Somebody's not telling the truth. So then I call them, both of them, that he's talking about. Hey, did y'all see where the steering wheel wasn't locked in place? Yeah, we saw that. Remember, they kept trying to tell me, the keys were in it. I appreciate that. That's not the question I asked you. With the steering wheel lock in place? No, it wouldn't. Okay, so now we're disproving shit because they lie. Here's Russell Tummins. On March 30th, I was directed by my supervisor, Rob Montgomery, to inspect vehicles such and such that has been involved in a rollaway the previous day. I proceeded to check the vehicle's parking brake, transmission shifter, and the shift interlock mechanism. With the vehicle on an incline in the VMF parking lot and the parking brake applied, the vehicle did not move. When shifted into neutral and my foot was removed from the brake pedal, I then tried shifting to reverse and drive. The vehicle still did not move. Even with a slight amount of throttle applied, I also checked the transmission shift mechanism. With the lock cylinder in the lock position, the key out, the shifter lever would not move from the park position with a reasonable amount of force applied. So they're going through here and saying they've done all these things. All these things that when they send the vehicle back, I'm showing that everyone I'm lied on it. Every one of these, they probably put this same statement in every case file when it comes to a rollaway runaway. All these things we did show that that vehicle was safe. There's nothing wrong with it. And the union easily disproved all of it. Here's the statement that he lied. I didn't think it was in this, but it, this is it. This is where he lied to me. All right, this is the postmaster he's writing to. As requested by the Bellmead station, I, Robert Montgomery, and my mechanic, Joe Lawson, arrived at on Friday 8 to retrieve the vehicle. While there, I was able to talk to the carriers that were present, and they were able to convey their concerns about the operation of the vehicle. Now, remember, he's already told me that from what he's seen, it's unsafe. And he told my supervisor, from what I just saw, it's unsafe. I had Scott reach up there with two fingers and very easily pull it down. Listen to what he says here. While using the normal key that is assigned to the vehicle, the carriers demonstrated that the key was able to be removed 
while the vehicle shifter was not fully in park, and they were able to shift the vehicle without the key in the locking cylinder. Under a normal function check and operation of the key and shifter, these two components were working properly as expected. But when operated with quick, jerking motions, or while in haste, the key was able to be removed and the shifter shifted improperly. The park brake was also checked at that time, and when properly applied, was able to hold the vehicle from rolling. Now, I remember when I asked him, he pulled it up, and he started rolling. He said, pull it up higher. I pulled it up higher. I said, you satisfied? Yes. As demonstrated to me by the supervisor, the park brake handle needs to be pulled upward a, a total of eight audible clicks. Completely untrue. In order for this particular vehicle to be held in place to prevent any forward or backward movement. When the vehicle was to be loaded onto the wrecker, the inside of the key cylinder broke prematurely, and the vehicle was no longer able to be started. Reasons for this breakage be from excessive and or harsh usage or simply daily wear and tear plus the age of the components. Then he says, once we got the vehicle back, we looked at it again, nothing wrong with it. <laughs> so this guy completely, completely lied. You see what I'm saying? He came out there and I asked every, everything I asked him. Is that to your satisfaction? Do you see what I just did there? He didn't say, well, your, your quick jerking motions are doing it. I had him very easily reach up there with two fingers, pull it down. You satisfied with that? Yep. It's unsafe. When he writes the postmaster, what does he say? Carries out there his quick jerking motion. These lying motherfuckers, I'm telling you, man, are some lying pieces of shit. Then you got a statement from Mike Vaughn, the MCSO. Uh, then I went around and got all of the vehicle repair tags talking about the gear selectors that are broken, emergency brake does not hold. So I put in a request for all those. Those are in the file. Dealing with the gear selector, gear selectors having issues. Uh, then I got her um, $39.99 to show that the street that she, because they tried to say she was parking illegally. I got the $39.99 to show that cars are always parked in front of the box. So she can't pull up to the boxes, so she has to get out. Because that street, they always park in front of the boxes. And then I'm putting their M1289. If y'all ever heard of that, it's in there, M1289. So the parties agree that management has the right to articulate guidelines to its employees regarding their responsibility concerning issues relating to safety. However, the parties also mutually agree that local accident policies, guidelines, or procedures may not be inconsistent or in conflict with a national agreement. Discipline imposed for cited safety rule violations must meet the just cause provisions of Article 16 of the national agreement. Further, administrative action with respect to safety violations must be consistent with Articles 14 and 29. And I put that in there because management said she violated a zero-tolerance policy. Well, can't have a zero-tolerance policy. I'm still afforded due process and just cause under Article 16. So I put this in there to say, hey, look, you put a zero-tolerance policy up, you still have to go by the provisions of Article 16. And that's what M1289 is for, okay? So if you've got any zero-tolerance policy, get you to M1289. Then I've got Article 14 in there. That language is already in there, so you just print it off of that. Article 16 language is in there, so you can just print it off of that. I got the uh, information request, the vehicle maintenance jacket, that's in there. And then you got management's contentions. And so that should be enough. They got the zero tolerance policies in there and SOPs and things like that. 
But uh, you're going to see the, the issues you're going to have with management is they will constantly lie all the way up to the VMF. They're going to lie because uh, that's just what they do. And so we're going to have to do a thorough investigation of that vehicle. Call whoever you need to call. Make sure that you contend that you called them, the questions that you're going to ask them. Uh, 413P is going to be critical in this uh, if they don't let you go out there to the scene of a rollaway runaway accident so that we can see at the scene, do these things happen to the steering column? Get into that case file that I put up there. If you have a rollaway runaway, get into that case file. All right, read all those. Uh, the, you got a bunch of articles in there. Uh, read those things, educate yourself on rollaway runaways. All right. There's a couple of good sites for you. I talked about, uh, because they're going to fire us. They're going to fire us on a rollaway one away accident. So, uh, make sure that we do our due diligence. Okay. So that's just a few pages out of 262, but I think that that's enough to help you fight a rollaway runaway accident. All right. Uh, Facebook, get on Facebook. I think Miss Lindsay's taking a little leave of absence. Uh, uh, she's a sweetheart of a girl, and she's uh, taking a little leave to take care of some family issues. So uh, God bless her. Uh, Jeremy McCall uh, from AidArbitration.com. Get on there. Everything you're going to need for rollaway one-way accidents in this episode. Everything you're going to need for runaway rollaway accidents is in this episode, okay? So get in there and look at that. You'll have uh, Discord booming right now great stuff going on in discord get on reddit uh, reddit is jumping right now so make sure you get on there and uh and and get involved get you some shirts like i said everything's going to mda uh, so get you some shirts one or 20 however many you want and uh, wear them around the house and look cool uh, that you're wearing for made arbitration stuff <laughs> and so for those of you that are fighting, keep fighting. Uh, there, better days are coming, okay? So for those of you who choose to fight, fight. Man, I'll be here with you every step of the way. Like I said, it's not the dog in the fight. It's the fight in the dog. Some of these people that are in positions have no fight in them whatsoever. None. Zero. You couldn't melt them and pour them on people. They're so scared uh, to fight. Do the best you can with what you've got. Let the other things fall into place. Hopefully, you know, we'll get some people in, in positions that are true fighters. And that's what we need. All right. So y'all have a fantastic rest of the week. Um, next week, I'm going to have some uh, information on how to donate to Mr. Gates' family. I tried to, to have people send me something. I got a lot of different things, but I'm not comfortable with that. Um, and we're going to donate to Mr. Gates' family. Uh, make sure that this sweet lady doesn't have to... None of her concerns need to be financial as far as, you know, uh, laying her sweet husband to rest. Uh, we're going to try to help out as much as we can, okay? And so I'll lead that charge on from aid arbitration uh, next week. Uh, and if I can find out during the week, I'll put it up on Facebook page, from aid arbitration to Facebook page, how we can donate to her. And that way she doesn't have to concern herself with finances right now. Maybe we can put a little change in her pocket to where she can she can concentrate on on laying her sweet husband to rest, and um, not be concerned with anything else outside of that. Maybe we can help out a little bit as much as we can. Okay, so we'll discuss that next week. All right. So y'all have a fantastic rest of the week, and I will talk to y'all next Sunday. All right. Bye.